0: Good morning, and welcome to The Light 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Brogi is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogi, you may call 525-1859 or on your all cellular phone star 887 if you're calling outside our immediate area call toll free 877 924 7980 now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi
1: study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth we welcome you as always to this hour together as we open God's word the only book God ever wrote We call this the Bible line, if you're new to our station, this is an opportunity over the next hour for people to call in with questions they have as it relates to God's word or some issue they're facing in their life or ministry that they'd like counsel on from the word of God. So if you would like to call us again, the number locally is 843-525-1859. For those who are listening in, through the Internet, maybe outside of this area or other states, uh, we have a toll-free number you can use, and that number is 877. Our call letter is WAGP 980. WAGP 980, the 877 number. Or, as always, there are many people every week, and we had a score of them last week. We just didn't get to most of them. You can email us directly into the studio at tbl for the Bible line at WAGP.net. So any one of those three ways, if you call, you can remain anonymous, you can go on there live, you can dictate your question, however you'd like to give it. Rick, let's get started this morning.
0: Indeed, Pastor, all our lines are lit. I'm thinking we ought to do a share but... Uh, By we... the way, Tony
1: Evans, of course, is here this week, Dr. Tony Evans, he'll be here Thursday and Friday nights here at Community Bible Church, and on uh, Friday, there is a pastor's lunch, uh, and I suppose if someone called today, if they hadn't, we'd accept them.
0: But the deadline's really passed. But let's go to the first uh, first caller. All right. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
2: Hi. Um, I passed a call. My name's Javon Williams. How you doing, sir?
1: Hey, Javon. Doing fine. Thank you. Where are you calling from? All
2: right. I'm in uh, Fredericksburg, Virginia, now, sir.
1: All right. What's going on, sir?
2: Well, um, I'm in a, a Bible study and a care group, and it's going to be on the Book of Job. And I was wondering exactly how long are the events in Job's life, meaning his trials and so forth, exactly, sir, how long are these events taking place? Because I think I learned before that it was like a week or two. I'm not sure anymore, sir. Well, it's a good
1: question. The Bible doesn't actually tell us. So if someone gave you a specific time frame, it would be pure presumption on their part. But it seems, you know, rather quick, Um, But the the point of the book is not so much to give us the the, the time uh, in terms of the time frame, whether it was a week or a month or a year, as much as to help us to see the eternal truths that God would have. You know, the book of Job, I always divide it into three parts in my mind. In chapters 1 through 3, you have his distress. And of course, Satan comes into the presence of, of God and says, listen, the, the only reason Job really loves you, God, is because you, you've bought his love. You've blessed him so much. Take away some of those blessings, and we'll see if you really, truly love him. So you see his distress in verses 1 through 3, uh, Job's defense in 4 through 37, and ultimately his deliverance in 38 to 42. So that's how the book divides. Unfortunately, Job is often misused and abused as a book in the Bible. And that a number of Job's friends give counsel and advice. And what I find so fascinating is to see the uh, prosperity theology movement quote the book of Job, quote Job's friends to justify some of their doctrine. And, of course, what's interesting is at the end of the book in chapter 42, it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So when God gives an analysis of these three men, it's not good. But what's so interesting is to see guys like Kenneth Copeland and Hagen and all these other guys repeatedly quote these three men to justify doctrines. And it's a classic example of taking the Bible out of context. So the Bible doesn't tell us uh, the exact time frame on all the events that transpired in Job's life. But the point is not so much the time frame as much as it is the fact that uh, God demonstrates and vindicates Job as a righteous man and vindicates his own righteousness and gives us some timeless truth on how we should deal with trials. But that's a great question. Does that make
0: sense?
2: Thank you very much,
0: sir. Did you have a second question, Jovan?
2: I did, sir. Go ahead. Um, This this is a tough one. I was wondering, sir, if it's okay to marry a woman who is divorced, even if uh, you have never been married, and would that disqualify you from deacon or elder service if her ex-husband has not died?
1: Yeah, I think it would definitely disqualify you from uh, serving as an elder or a deacon, uh, because the uh, requirements given in 1 Timothy 3 for both an elder or a deacon is that he must be a one-woman man. Um, And, of course, that's been interpreted different ways in the course of the church. Uh, Some have said that that's a prohibition against uh, a bigamist or a polygamist. A bigamist is a guy with that two wives, a a polygamist three or more wives. And that what he was saying is that you can't be a bigamist or polygamist to be considered to be an elder in the church. Well, I think that's a ridiculous interpretation for several reasons. Number one, much like in our country today, bigamy and polygamy is illegal. It was illegal in the first century Roman Empire. It's against the law. The government saw no value in it. They saw it as destructive to society and uh, making people more um, dependent potentially on government need. And our government views it the same way, not just from the moral lens of Scripture, which I think is very much historically the root of that perspective. But also, the government also has perspective sometimes in terms of what's good for the society as a whole. So there's that side of it. Um, So, listen, if someone was a bigamist or a polygamist in the first century— claiming to be a Christian, they wouldn't even consider him a Christian. You could pull off bigamy and polygamy in the Old Testament, but not under the New Covenant where you'd be considered even a believer. Such a person would not be a candidate for uh, the office of elder or deacon, but a candidate for church discipline. Some have said that the husband of one wife means you have to be married. I don't think so, because that would disqualify the Apostle Paul who'd been single his whole life, not to mention that uh, Jesus, who's the chief elder, was single his whole life. And the word elder, it was true of every apostle. Every apostle was an elder or a pastor or a shepherd or a bishop or an overseer, all terms used interchangeably in the New Testament. Not obviously every elder is an apostle, but the apostles were elders. And so Peter referred to himself as our fellow elder, our fellow pastor. He was an apostle, but he was also a pastor, uh, so i don't think it's a prohibition against being single because Paul was an elder, he was a bishop uh he as the Lord Jesus some have said well uh it, it, what he's referring to is a a one kind of woman man in his heart it's a uh it's a prohibition against being flirtatious that's already been covered i think in terms of um uh self control uh, again, it's been interpreted in many different ways, that, and I go through all six interpretations. Uh, the Catholic Church said, well, the, um, since they advocate celibacy, how are they going to do this? Well, they're going to spiritualize the text, and they'll say, well, he's married to the church. And so they would say his um, children that are mentioned in the text are the people in the congregation historically most people have understood the husband of one wife to be a prohibition against someone who's in a second marriage or married someone who's in a second marriage Uh, because god is trying to protect the ideal wants to model the ideal through the leadership of the church so yes you disqualify yourself for leadership the leadership office in the church that doesn't mean divorced people can't serve in other capacities indeed they can but they cannot serve as an elder or as a deacon in the church if they can't model that ideal. And again, God is up on uh, divorced people as he is on any any other kind of sinner, all sinners. Uh, But God is also up on protecting uh, marriage and its sacredness. Let's go to the next question. Appreciate your call from Virginia today.
0: All right, 525-1859. If you have a question this morning and a caller has friends who believe that only some are appointed to go to heaven. The caller knows that's not true and knows scripture refutes that, but he'd like to know if uh, he should continue to associate with these friends as this subject continues to be brought up, almost as if they are trying to change his belief. What would you advise?
1: Well, Acts 13 says, as many as was appointed to eternal life believed. So there is an appointment that transpires. The question is uh, how it transpires and what are the implications? It sounds like... um, You know, your friends are arguing for unconditional election, though I can't say that definitively because they're not here to defend themselves. I certainly would not make this a test of fellowship. There are many good, godly people who uh, take John Calvin's slant on the doctrine of election. All Christians believe in the doctrine of election, the doctrine of appointment. The question is not if God elects, the question is how does God elect? Uh, God chose us before the foundation of the world. It's the Greek word we get our word election from. He chose us. That's what the Bible says. So you cannot say that the Bible doesn't teach the doctrine of election. The question is not does God elect, but on what basis? Some would say that God in eternity past, looked at the mass of humanity, and selected from that mass certain people to be saved and the rest to be damned. Um, And that's what's viewed. Then there's those who teach double election that say, well, God actually created some to be vessels of wrath to display uh, the aspect of his character that he is a wrathful God and he created others to be saved. That's double predestination or double election as it's often called. Um, I take it that God is an omniscient God, that man is dead in sin, so no one can take credit for salvation, Uh, Jacob Arminius was wrong that man had a spark left in him by which he could respond and come to God on his own. No, salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. God takes the initiative, but God, knowing that he'll initiate, also knows as an omniscient God how men will respond to that initiation. And to those whom he knows will respond, they are the called, the appointed ones. And those who are called are justified and ultimately positionally glorified and practically in the end. But again, I wouldn't make this a test of fellowship, but you might have to just say to your friends, because it's bothersome, because they may uh, only want to talk about that. Say, look, I love you. You love me and the Lord. Let's agree to disagree and win as many people to Jesus as we can and keep moving forward. Good question. Let's go to the next one. And by the way, if someone's interested in that, we're going to deal with this question in depth, tremendous depth. In our exposition of Romans, we're working our way chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Romans. We've already spent five hours in chapter one. We'll probably spend another five hours in chapter two. When we come to chapters nine, 10, and 11, we will deal extensively and in great detail with all of the arguments up one side, down the other, that people use in both camps and uh, try to ask carefully, what does the Bible actually say? What can we dogmatically, definitively say? Okay, let's go to the next one.
0: All right, this actually came in last week, um, so I don't know if you'll even remember this, but on Sunday, April 15th, during the opening prayer, uh, this person writes that you made a statement about the Lord being closed when the Bible was closed. Uh, Would you elaborate on that to include your thoughts on God's moving in supernatural ways today, and please include your thoughts on those who praise and worship on a more emotional level as well?
1: Well, I I think you misunderstood me. I don't think I said that. I think what I said was, is that when we open God's word, God's mouth is open. And when God's word is closed, God's mouth is closed. In other words, what I was trying to say probably in that prayer is we are to tremble and revere God's word. What we have in, what I have in my hands today, this morning is a copy of the very words of God almighty. And so when the Bible is open, God is speaking It's the voice box of Almighty God. When the Bible is shut, God is not speaking. Now, in terms of the supernatural, you know, let me just briefly answer it. And if you want to study it in more detail, let me direct you to a handout I have called the Signs and Wonders uh, handout, where I deal with the Signs and Wonders gifts. Uh, You can call, search the scriptures and ask for section six, and we'll be happy to send it to you as a as a file or mail it to you if you don't have a computer. But what I basically do is I show that people want to make miracles normative, uh, miracles through individuals normative throughout biblical history. And the truth is they've never been normative. Uh, listen, there's uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob never did a miracle. Uh, Noah never did a miracle. Those were great men of God. In fact, Noah is put in a class by himself as a great man of God. He is a very, very special man, Uh, but he never did a miracle. Uh, Joseph, who was a great planner, whom God used to preserve uh, people's lives, both Egyptians and the surrounding nations, not to mention the Jewish nation, he never did a miracle. In fact, the first one to come on the scene to do a miracle in the course of biblical history from the time of creation is Moses. And God does miracles through Moses, who... Passes the mantle to Joshua. He finishes the work, carries him into the promised land. Joshua dies, and the miracles dry up in terms of being done through an individual. Uh, Hundreds of years go by. There's no miracles until there's a time of new revelation and a new call on the people of Israel. And God does a series of miracles through Elijah and Elisha. And again, after those men leave the scene, the miracles dry up. That doesn't mean God can't do miracles. God did a miracle in the time of Daniel, didn't do it through Daniel when he was in the lion's den, but did it to Daniel. Didn't do it through his three sons in the faith, but did it to them when they're in the fiery furnace. Uh, God still does miracles today. He still answers prayer, sometimes beyond uh, the natural realm. Sometimes we call things miracles that aren't really miracles. You know, you hold a little precious brand new newborn in your life and you say, what a miracle. Well, it is a wonderful, incredible blessing and handiwork of God, but it's not a miracle because the Bible defined miracles where God would uh, supersede the, what we might call in quotes, the natural laws or the God given laws the natural laws of the universe and he supersedes them. A miracle is when God uh, goes against the law of gravity that he wrote and he makes the water and the Red Sea stand up like walls so that the people can go through in the dry ground. A miracle is when God uses a supernatural means to bring about a conception like the virgin conception. So a new baby happens through the means that God gave to create. It's an awesome um means it's a awesome testimony of God's eternal power and divine nature, but nonetheless means that God has given, that he has written into the universe. But a miracle defies natural laws. So when someone is dead and they are raised from the dead, that's a miracle. Or someone has a congenitally blind from, you know, blind from birth, and uh, God heals them supernaturally without any medical means. That's a miracle. Uh, So there's a difference, and God still does miracles, but he doesn't do them through people. So he did them through Moses. Hundreds of years went by, did them through Elijah and Elisha, Hundreds of years went by. He doesn't do them again until the Lord himself comes on the scene as the God-man and then through the apostles who help lay the foundation for a new work. Again, a new message is coming on the scene. And when the apostles die and the apostolic delegates whom they had selected to represent them die, no miracles happen. And they won't happen again according to the Bible until the time of the great tribulation period. There will be two men, for instance, who will come. They'll call fire down out of heaven. They'll, they'll, do, they'll do miracles similar to what Moses and Elijah did. In fact, many think they are Moses and Elijah because they mimic their ministries so well. I don't know, but um, they very well may be. So God has never done miracles throughout the course of biblical history, but only at great turning points of of history. But some today want to make miracles normative throughout biblical history, and they haven't thought it through. They've never been normative, but only at the great turning points when God is sending a, a special message to his people. Great question. Let's go to the next
0: one. All right. Our next uh, listener would like to know why there is so little information about what Jesus said and did after the crucifixion.
1: Well, uh, you know, I'm not sure what you define as little or big, but there is information. The Lord walked on the earth for 40 days, uh, and he spoke to the apostles. But remember, there's a change of plan. The Lord is passing the baton. The church is built on the foundation of Christ and the apostles. If we can view the apostles as uh, Christ as the foundation, no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Uh, God didn't build his church on a man uh, like the Pope, he built it on Christ. I, for that matter, I don't think he built it on Peter's confession, as some interpret that passage. He built it on Christ. Let Scripture speak for itself. No one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. But it also speaks of the foundation of Christ and the apostles, the apostles and the prophets, in Ephesians chapter 4. And again, they would, if Christ is the bedrock, they're the superstructure that the church is built upon. And so the Lord is uh, passing the baton from himself to these men, and these men represent him. They represent uh, the ones who will be his spokespersons, and they understand that. uh, So that, for instance, when Paul writes to the church at Corinth in in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He makes an interesting statement. He's talking about marriages and different situations. And he says, for instance, in uh, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 8, I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. So he speaks to singleness. Then he says in verse 10, but to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. And then he gives those instructions. In other words, this is an issue that Jesus addressed and spoke of during his public ministry. You can read about it in the Gospels by what he taught about marriage and divorce. And by the way, that first caller, if they want to listen to a sermon I did on Matthew 19, I didn't answer your question full. It just occurred to me, listen to that tape on Matthew 19, 1 to 10, on the rightness of remarriage after divorce. In either case... Um, Paul is saying, this is an issue Jesus spoke on, so I'm just going to tell you what he said, but then he'll say a couple of verses later, to the rest, I say not the Lord, meaning Jesus never addressed this subject, but I'm going to speak on his behalf. So the baton was passed to the apostles, and so you would expect the focus to change, and it indeed had changed, because the Lord then highlights the apostles as his representatives, You're going to speak on my behalf. You're going to represent me, Mark 16. You're going to go into all the world and preach the gospel, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's why I think the change of focus, because we're moving from the public ministry of Christ to the public ministry through his body beginning with the apostles and through people like you and me, we are the body of Christ. Great question. Let's go
0: to the next one. All right. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And uh, this listener would like to know, what does it mean to fear God?
1: Well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, Sometimes if you have like the new American standard, Uh, They'll have a little cross-reference out in the margin indicating that you could translate it to revere, uh, to revere God. Um, There's a sense in which we don't fear God in this respect. John speaks to it. Let me read it. It's found in uh, 1 John chapter 4, and he says, By this love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. As Christ is, so are we, we being John and other believers who are the born ones that he addresses in his epistles, so are we. As Christ is righteous, so we have been declared righteous. Him that knew no sin, Second Corinthians 5, became sin for us, the sinless son of God on the cross bore your sin, my sin, and his body on the cross. Why? So that we could become, and the word become indicates a a change of status because it's not true of everyone, but if you want to go to heaven, it needs to be true of you, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So as Christ is righteous, I am righteous. That's why in the New Testament we are called saints. So because I have that righteousness, this is a great, great truth to get a hold of, by this love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. When I stand before Almighty God, I will stand there with a sense of confidence. Yes, a sense of humility, but a sense of confidence, because I'm not standing in my righteousness, but in the righteousness that was given to me freely as a gift, as Paul says, on the basis of faith. And then he says in the next verse, there is no fear in love, but perfect love Casts out fear. Why? He says because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. So there's a sense in which we are not to fear God in the respect that because I have the righteousness of Christ, because God has been propitiated, the word propitiate, he's just used a few verses earlier, by this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The Greek word helasterion is a word that means to appease, to satisfy wrath. Now there was a translation that was done by a guy named Dodd in the 1950s and he had trouble viewing God as a God of wrath. And so in the RSV, Uh, Christians, evangelicals used to call it the reverse standard version, jokingly. Uh, In either case, uh, he translated some of the verses that dealt with the wrath of God in a less than faithful way to the Word of God. The RSV was probably the first, quote-unquote, liberal translation that was done. So uh, they denied the uh, idea that uh, a virgin will conceive that a virgin means virgin, letting Scripture interpret itself. But they say, oh, you're a young maiden, not a literal virgin, because that's a miracle, and we have trouble with miracles. And the new RSV is even more liberal than that, uh, because that was really the very first gender-sensitive Bible that came out. It only laid the foundation for the TNIV and now the NIV 2010, which is a blend of the NIV-84, Uh, which is what you read until 2011, when the 2010 edition came out in paper. So now when you go and buy a paper version of the NIV, you're buying the 2010 version. And it's not the same as... The NIV 84, it's a blend of the TNIV that evangelicals across the country revolted against because it was making the Bible, quote-unquote, gender-sensitive in the process, altering God's Word and what it says to be, make it politically correct to take out male headship. Uh, that's unfortunate, but that's what they've done. So uh, God was propitiated. God's wrath was satisfied. It is finished, to it's a, It's a Greek word that meant paid in full. All of God's demands were satisfied on the cross. So God doesn't deal with me in anger. God's wrath is not against me. Now the wrath of God abides on the one who does not believe, John 3.36 says. Before I'm saved, I am by nature a child of wrath. But if I've been saved, I have Christ's righteousness, and his wrath has been satisfied. So in that sense, I don't have to fear like God is going to beat me up, you know, like he's going to wrath me because his wrath—now, God still disciplines. Why did I obey my daddy when I was in his home? He's dead now, but why did I obey him? I obeyed my dad because I loved my dad, and I obeyed my dad because I feared my dad. My dad would take me to the woodshed if I stepped out of line, not in an abusive way, but nonetheless, if you love your children, you'll discipline your children, not abusively. There is a padded area in the back that God's designed, and you don't use your hand. You use a separate instrument. God calls it the rod. But I obeyed him because I loved him and I feared him. Why do I obey my heavenly father? Because I love him, but I also fear him. I know that if I step out of line, he'll take his hand of blessing off my life. I will no longer be an instrument by which he can glorify himself through me. His power will be diminished, and he might take me to the woodshed. And God has many creative ways in which to do that. So Paul, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 11, he's really speaking about the fear of God when he speaks of the Lord's table, and it was preceded by The agape or the love feast that Jude speaks about, Paul did away with the love feast in the Corinthian church because it was abused. He didn't do away with the Lord's Supper because that's an ordinance that Christ has ordained for his people. He says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. God wants you to eat and drink when you come to the Lord's table. He doesn't want you to say, well, I'm just an unworthy scumbag, and I can never participate. No, he wants you to deal with your sin. Let a man eat and drink, but don't eat and drink just flippantly, because the very elements you hold at the Lord's table are symbols of what it costs God to purchase us. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. If you come to the Lord's table and you don't judge the body rightly, which he will explain as our dealing with known sin in our heart, then God will judge us. That ought to make you tremble. In fact, he says in the next verse, for this reason, uh, because some came to the Lord's table and had unconfessed, unrepented sin in their heart. Many among you are weak, sick, and a number sleep. Some have died. Uh, You live in sin, you're inviting the judgment of God, especially when you come to the Lord's table. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by by the Lord. But he said if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together, and he gives the instruction. So, there's a sense in which we fear and revere God. Uh, The writer of the Hebrews, quoting the book of Proverbs, tells us specifically, it says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. You say, I thought God loved everybody. Well, he does. But he doesn't love everybody in the same way. Uh, God so loved the world he gave his son. There's that aspect of God's love. But when you become a believer, the Bible says you are beloved of God. Uh, you become a member and noun form of his beloved. You know, I, I may love your children, but I don't love them the way I love my children. I have a special affection on my children and on my grandchildren that God gives you. And God loves the world, but he has a special affection on those who love him. And so God speaks of fearing him, revering him, even as it relates to the people of God. Just read Proverbs. He's writing to those that are saved and uh, speaks of the fact that we are to revere God. God is holy. You don't flippantly approach him or think that you can, you know, engage in sin and not have consequences. The wrath of God is satisfied if you're saved. But listen, the discipline of God is an ongoing thing, and that ought to make you shake.
0: 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. Or email us, as this person has, at tbl at And they write, in Acts 4.12, Whose name is the apostle referring to when he says there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved?
1: Well, in the context, he's speaking of the Lord Jesus. He's preaching about Christ. And, um, you know, he says rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, As to how this man has been made well, let it be made known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone, and he's quoting the Old Testament, a messianic passage. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders. Uh, but which became the very cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven. Contextually the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul quotes an old Testament passage in Romans 10, but he contextualizes it to Jesus Christ. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, who's the him, Jesus, should not perish but have eternal life. In the same gospel, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. And again, the context is dealing with the Lord Jesus, who was in the beginning, who was with God, who was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. So Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. God has overlooked the times of ignorance and is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent. Why? Because he has fixed a man in which he will judge the world, Christ. So you have to come to the Father through the Son. There's no other possible way. Good question.
0: Our next uh, caller would like to know the following. He says, uh, my understanding is that antichrist also means another Christ in addition to against Christ. The Mormons and Catholics worship another Christ and therefore are against the true Christ. The false Christs of the Mormons and Catholics can't save people from their sins. In American politics, so-called evangelical leaders are supporting Mormon and Catholic candidates, apparently for the sake of political expediency. How is this different from the Jewish leaders who rejected Jesus in an attempt to preserve the political aspect of their religious system? Uh, This person continues, isn't the persecuted church that joins hands with the world the way that the church dies over time? And isn't the persecuted church that doesn't compromise the gospel and the Bible how the church grows over time? It seems like large numbers and political alliances appeal to short-term benefits but spell long-term death.
1: It's a good question. It's thought-provoking in terms of what our role is in the world uh, you know, when Mitt Romney began to run for the Republican nomination, a lot of evangelicals, of course, didn't want to support him because they felt like, well, you know, he's a Mormon and he as a Mormon and he he's not a nominal Mormon; he's a real Mormon. My guess is is he probably wears Mormon underwear. Well, by the way, there is real Mormon underwear they wear. Um, my son worked for the uh, Secretary of Human Resources in the Bush administration, and he was a committed Mormon. He wore the Holy Mormon underwear. Listen, they they wear it. And my guess is he probably does too. I don't know for sure, but he's more than a nominal Mormon. He's a committed Mormon. He did his two-year missionary tract as a Mormon, and he's been active in the church the whole time. So what do Mormons not believe? Well, they don't believe in all the essential doctrines that you must believe, to be considered born again, they don't believe in salvation by grace through faith. They teach salvation by works, so they deny sola gratia, sola fide. They do not believe in the virgin conception as we believe it, as Christians. Uh, they believe Brigham Young taught it, and when a prophet speaks, he is speaking authoritative in the Mormon Church, and he spoke in an official capacity. And he taught Brigham Young that God the Father has a human body, which he does not. And he came down and had sex with the Virgin Mary. And that's how Jesus was conceived. So they deny the virgin conception as taught in Scripture that God the Holy Spirit overshadowed the womb of the Virgin Mary. And there was a supernatural conception where the eternal deity of Christ was inseparably combined with human uh, uh, sinless humanity. He is all God and all man in one person. Mormons deny that. So they deny his eternality. Jesus is a created being. He's not the eternal God, which of course means they deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They don't believe that there's one God coexisting and co-equal eternal persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So they deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They deny the infallibility of the word of God that the Bible is an errant. Um, again, you read the Book of Mormon, you b- read the Bible, you, c- you can't believe both. Um, the Book of Mormon, we think of it as one book, but it's actually 17 books within one book. So one of the books, for instance, is the Book of Alma. I think it's chapter 7. Don't quote me on this. It's either chapter 7 or 8 in the Book of Alma. It says, for instance, that Jesus was born in Jerusalem. Well, the prophet said in the Old Testament, Micah, that he would be born in Bethlehem, in the house of bread. Uh, The New Testament says he was born at Bethlehem. Uh, Bet means house of, and you'll see that prefix to many words. Uh, He was born in the house of bread. That's what the New Testament affirms. The Book of Mormon says Jerusalem. Uh, When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says for three hours— Darkness overshadowed the the world. What does the Book of Mormon say? It says, for three days, darkness overshadowed. Listen, the Book of Mormon and the Bible can't both be right. So this indeed concerns me. Because if a man could be deceived spiritually, what else could he be deceived on as President of the United States? Now, lay that aside for just a second. So a lot of evangelicals initially said, well, we want to support an evangelical." Uh, They didn't want to support a Democrat. Why? Because most Democrats are pro-abortion. They are in favor of murdering little babies. Listen, Christian Democrat. If you have a Democrat who's pro-life, fantastic. Then I would consider voting for him, all things being equal. But if he's pro-murder little babies, how can you vote for him? How can you vote for the President of the United States, when he is in favor of murdering little babies? How can you vote for the President of the United States when he is in favor of homosexual rights? Listen, you cannot obey the Word of God and be faithful to it and compromise truth. And so we are called to be salt and to be light. And so I think our responsibility is we should vote. So who do you vote for when there's not much to choose for, choose the best possible candidate. The best possible person who would reflect Judeo-Christian values. Am I excited about Mitt Romney, but if you know if it's assuming and it appears to be Mitt Romney versus Barack Obama, would I invite vote for Barack Obama not on your life. Why would I vote for a murdering president, a a president who wants to murder little babies? How could I possibly do that and stand before God Almighty? I would never want to do that. How would I want to stand before a president who's taking away our religious freedoms? And Catholics are standing up against this. The Catholic bishops came out this week irate, saying, listen, if it means we're going to go to jail, we're going to go to jail. They've got more backbone than a lot of evangelicals do. They're doing something, at least that's right here, because the president of the United States wants to take away religious freedom. Friend, this is just the start. You give this guy a second term, there's no telling where it's going to go. So y- y- you pick the best possible man. At least Mitt Romney is pro-life, I think, At least he says he is. He's been converted. And I got some doubts, but he appears to be, at least now. Uh, At least he's pro-family and says he will be. But listen, we don't have a lot of good choices right now. We really don't. Um, So, you know, people were, a lot of evangelicals got behind Rick Perry, and he flopped in a short time. And Rick Santorum, a Roman Catholic, and nice guy, not born again, nice guy. Um, me and somebody else here in the studio, Grant Castleberry, we, we sat with him in my office and shared the plan of salvation, doesn't know Christ. Um, nice guy, but, you know, I'm praying for him. Maybe, maybe he's met the Lord since that day. We walked him through the plan of salvation, he and his daughter. Uh, but listen, you choose the best possible candidate that reflects Christian values. And for some people, they might say, I'm, pfft, I'm, I'm not going to vote for that slot. I'll vote for slots E, F, and G, but not A, B, and C. You know, you're going to have to decide that when you meet God in heaven. I, I, our goal is to reflect the best possible Christian values that we can. Anyway, I'm speaking, by the way, independently here, not as a representative <laughs> of WAGP. I have to say that legally. Go ahead. Okay, Let's go to the good. next
0: question. Indeed. Uh, all right. Our next uh, caller says the following, Um is a uh, church is researching the qualifications and roles of elders for their church. Would you address what the church needs to seek as they fill the positions of elders today?
1: Well, there are central passages in the Bible that deal with the qualifications for an elder. The central passages that you'd want to look at would be 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, Acts chapter 20, and 1 Peter chapter 5. And in those four central passages, you will find at least twenty-one qualifications for someone who will serve in the office of elder. Unfortunately, today, we ask questions much like the first caller from Virginia this morning is, "Has he been divorced?" Listen, that's one of many qualifications and issues that need to be addressed. Um, you need to look at uh, the whole man's life, his family a whole host of issues. Now, if you want to hear some sermons on it that uh, are hour long, two hour long, um, you can you can go online to searchthescriptures.org, listen to the sermons on Titus 1. I've preached the pastoral epistles. You can listen to the sermon on 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 8. And by the way, I'm talking about pastors. The, 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 the pastor's luncheon this week on Friday is not for pastorettes there are no such things as pastorettes in the Word of God. There are no women pastors of local churches in the New Testament. That's a man-made, manufactured, politically correct kind of thing, but it's not biblical. God has a different role for women, a high and holy role. But when you mix roles, whether it's in the home or in the church, you do tremendous harm to God's design and what he has planned. So, again, I'm assuming you're talking about men, and that's the assumption in 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 12 all the way through chapter 3, verse 8. If you can tell me how a woman can be the husband of one wife, I'll tell you how she can be a pastor. Uh, You know, God's real clear. After he says a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man, he gives two reasons, and they have nothing to do with cultural issues in the first century. He goes back to the created order, the beginning. And he goes back to the fall. He says, listen, it was not Adam who was first created. It was not Eve who was first created, but Adam. So he goes back to the created order. Eve came alongside as his helpmate. And when she stepped out of her God-given role, it was not Adam who was deceived. It was Eve. Now, Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. But she was deceived because she stepped out of her God-given role, and that still happens today. When you step out of the role that God has given you, you open yourself up to deception, and that's what happened to Eve. So he gives two uh, eternal principles as it relates to male headship. And then he goes on and he gives all these male qualifications in First Timothy 3, 1 through 8. So my, this is what I would recommend to you, is I would recommend – a careful study your board who's involved in the pastor selection of an elder or whatever it is, whether it's a polity where you have a single elder or multiple elders, and really study a passage like 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 8. And I'd be happy to send you a DVD for free if that will help you. But then you want to stop and say, well, what are the application of these principles? So, for instance, when I hire a pastor and our staff, I send them a questionnaire because, okay, if a man must be sound in doctrine, well, what does that look like today? So I want to know, well, you know, what's your view, say, of creation? Did God create over millions and millions of years, or did he create in six literal 24-hour days with no gaps in between? Um, When a man must have a good reputation with those who are on the outside, I'm going to ask in our pastoral search survey a question like, would you be willing, based on Luke 16, 11, to give us your Social Security number so that we can do a um, financial check on your life, a credit check on your life? Why would I want to hire some guy who doesn't pay his bills on time? Why would I want him to represent a, a, a community Bible church? I wouldn't. And so there are applications of those principles that God gives when a man must not be addicted to much wine. How are you going to apply that? You going to allow your pastor to be a bear drinking pastor? Well, what does that t- What does that phrase mean? And what are they, how did they understand that in the first century? And how are you going to apply it today? So those are critical issues. So, again, I would listen to that, and then I would create some questions that you can interview people with first on paper and then see if you want to pursue them. And then I would do references, and I would do secondary references And uh, to make sure that you're getting a representative picture, then I would probably get them to send me a video sermon uh, so I can watch it and so on. Because there are some good men out there that are highly qualified for ministry, but not just as a teaching pastor in a local assembly. They should be maybe an administrator or do something else. They might be on your pastoral staff, but not a teaching pastor. So there are a lot of questions you have to ask and answer. Good question. Let's go to the
0: next one. All right. Karen from Savannah writes, I heard something recently I'd never thought about before, but I found it very provocative and continue to think on it. But I can only think of a few scriptures dealing with the idea. So here goes. Since we can only approach God through his son, Jesus Christ, and God tells us that he is spirit and that no one can see his face and live, when we get to heaven, that will continue to be true. And we will only actually see Jesus and our relationship with God will only be through him. But in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that uh, though now we have seen through a glass dimly, then we will see face to face and will know you fully, even as we are known. Also, I'm reminded that even in heaven, we'll still be created creatures and not God. So maybe it could be true. When I think about what I've read, it does seem like we're told uh, we will be with God, but are only told specifically that we will see Jesus. Your thoughts?
1: Well, the passage that immediately comes to mind would be 1 Timothy chapter 6. And Paul is charging young Timothy, his son, in the faith. And he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and Lord of lords. He's talking here in reference to God, the father who at the proper time is going to bring about the return of his son from heaven. By the way, let me just say parenthetically, but the okay. same title that is given to God, the father king of kings and Lord of lords is given to the Lord Jesus Christ in the revelation. Why? Cause they're equal people. In either case. Um, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That's what the Bible says. Now, God is spirit. Have I ever, have I ever seen God the Father? No. You haven't either. No man has seen him or can see him. Have I seen God the Son? No, Uh, but I will see him someday. Rich wounds yet glorified above. We sing in that great hymn by Charles Wesley. In his glorified body, we will see him. We will see the nail scars in his hands and in his side. Will we know the Father in heaven? Of course. Do I know the Father now? Yes, my heart cries out, Abba. Father, do I will I see him in heaven? Not according to this passage. It says no man has seen him or more can see him. Uh, God put a face on Himself when He sent Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came and took on humanity. He tabernacled among us. John one eighteen says. And so um, we will see the sun. Will we see God, the Holy Spirit? I don't see God, the Holy Spirit today. Well, I I don't see how you can see spirit. Now there was some theophanies where there were outward physical manifestations of God. Uh, The spirit descended as a dove. He's not a dove. He's not a bird, but he came representatively as a dove. The spirit of peace did, um, and God the Father, in certain places in the Old Testament, appeared. But I don't think we will see him in heaven. That doesn't mean we won't know him or enjoy him or spend time with him or anything like that, any more than we, do, that we enjoy him right now. When you're born again, something happens on the inside. The Spirit bears witness to your spirit that you have become a child of God, by which Paul says our hearts reach out, Abba, Father, uh, Daddy, There's a tenderness that happens in your relationship with God Almighty, and that will continue and manifest itself in a way like you never, ever could imagine. Yes, it may be dimly now, but someday it's going to be so clear, but that doesn't mean we will physically see God the Father. Now, that's good Mormon doctrine, and they'll show you when they come to your house a picture of God the Father with a long, flowing white beard and everything else, but it's not good biblical doctrine.
0: All right. I think we've got time for this last one. Uh, Does the Bible say that we're supposed to have prison ministries? And if so, is the Bible talking about a context of mainly political prisoners, i.e. persecuted people like you would have in a communist country or the Roman Empire? Or is it really talking about criminals, too? In America, we have all of these prison ministries that are geared toward criminals. I just want to verify how valid this is. And does the Bible really tell us to do this? Or is it something people made up? I think prison ministries are valid, but want to double check.
1: Well, you know, the Lord said, I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in naked, and you did not clothe me and in prison, and you did not visit me. Well, they said, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison? He said, well, the extent you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. And so... Again, God calls us to care for our own. And in the first century, when someone went to prison, their needs had to be cared for. There wasn't colored TV and air conditioned and three meals brought a day. There was a guy in, from the Ukraine, came to America, struggling a little bit financially, so he got himself arrested. He said, you get good, three good meals a day in prison. Man, they take care of your every need. What a beautiful hotel. And that's where he went. Um, listen, prison ministry along with every other ministry, is a reflection of helping people who can't necessarily help you. That's what the book of James talks about. It's selfless ministry. God doesn't necessarily call everyone to visit prisons every week, but he does call us to take care of his people, the least of these, his brethren. We could spend more time on that, but we're out of time. But thanks for being with us today, Dr. Tony Evans, Thursday and Friday night here at Community Bible Church at 645. God bless you. you.